What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We've all watched in horror as an avalanche of anti-trans laws have rained down across the country. Now, technology and surveillance may be the tools states use to enforce them. To discuss, we are joined this morning by Renee Klejic, an investigative reporter at POGO, the Project on Governmental Oversight, whose reporting has been published in Time Magazine, Teen Vogue, the Texas Observer, the El Paso Times, and more. Her article for POGO is Policing Gender, How Surveillance Tech Aids Enforcement of Anti-Trans Laws. Good morning, Renee. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us and for this article, Renee. I mentioned in the intro that we've seen an avalanche of laws um, come down targeting trans folks. I believe that's actually the same description you use in your article. Can you paint a broad picture for my listeners about the types of laws being passed or proposed and give us an idea about the sheer numbers of them? Um, well, yeah, any number of kind of natural disaster analogies are appropriate and have been widely used to describe the scale of uh, this kind of legislative onslaught and attack on trans people and on the the LGBTQ plus community more broadly. Um, This year, over 500 laws have been introduced by state legislatures targeting trans folks. Um, I was just checking and as of today, 85 bills have passed this year in 23 states. Um, So, you know, with lots of new legislation passing right now, and I mean, a number of new laws just went into effect on July 1st, there's a lot of questions, right, about how these will be enforced, uh, what they're going to look like in practice. But the main thing I was exploring uh, in this investigation was what we already know about the ways that surveillance technology is used to disproportionately target trans people. And the tools that exist that are now very, uh, I don't know if well-positioned is the right phrase to use, but they're available to not only law enforcement, but to uh, any number of officials who may decide to enforce these laws. Because, of course, a number of these laws are kind of akin to uh, abortion bans in that they have provisions banning people from aiding and abetting, and there's kind of a... a a worry that they are going to encourage some vigilante enforcement of these laws as well, or encourage people to report their community members. Right. I want to start more broadly and then we'll get into uh, specifics, Uh, but let's talk about the tech aspect in a broad sense. What kinds of practices are we seeing, or actually the the surveillance is where I I want to start. What kinds of practices are we seeing, like in Florida, for example, where legislators or others are trying to gather data and track the activities or locations uh, of trans folks? Yeah, um, there have been a number of state efforts to kind of obtain uh, data specifically focused on trans people. So you mentioned Florida. In Florida, uh, Governor DeSantis uh, required all state universities to surrender patient data for any any uh, patients at university health clinics who had been diagnosed with gender dysphoria or had obtained any number of gender-affirming care procedures. Um what they intended to do with that list was not made clear, but I spoke to a number of Florida University students uh, for this investigation. And, you know, the, the thing that is clear is that state surveillance efforts like this are very scary for trans folks who are 
you know, adults where that, that care is not illegal um, in Florida at this point, uh, but they are aware that their, their activities are being surveilled. Um, Florida is not unique. Missouri, uh, the, the state's attorney general has been doing similar patient data requests regarding gender affirming care as part of their efforts to enforce gender affirming care bans. Um, also in Texas, uh, a hospital employee leaked patient data uh, for gender affirming care procedures to a right wing think tank uh, that then ended up being being published um, and was used as the basis for an investigation by the attorney general into the provision of gender affirming care. So uh, specifically with gender affirming care laws, there's there's quite a bit of concern around the way that uh, medical data is being wielded uh, by those who want to target trans folks. All right, we talked about institutions of higher learning, hospitals. Are there other types of facilities or institutions that are getting these types of requests, and are they all complying? Um, is anyone saying, no, we're not going to hand over this data to you? Um, yeah, in Missouri, uh, they have, uh, they've been not complying and refusing to hand over that data. Uh, I... I don't think I am aware of every single instance where this has been happening, but I, um, my my understanding is that you know there's there's a variety of responses, and even in Texas, there also a couple of years ago the um, state requested the number of people like a list of the number of people who had had their uh, gender changed on their ID, and that request was ultimately not complied with because there were concerns about accuracy. Um, I just want to flag that, you know, beyond medical data, there's also quite a bit of concerns around facial recognition technology mm-hmm. and around student spyware. And of course, when we talk about anti-trans laws, gender affirming care bans are just the tip of the iceberg. There's laws targeting pretty much every facet of public life. Um, and, and that's why a lot of trans rights advocates have really been saying this is uh, an attack on the the right of trans people to exist. You know, it's really like an existential threat. Right. What type, you mentioned facial recognition software. Can you talk about other types of surveillance technology that is or could be at play here? Um, So privacy experts have flagged concerns around facial recognition software and specifically within that, um, a, a tool that's called automated gender recognition, which Listen, there are a lot of concerns about the accuracy of facial recognition software and specifically these tools that claim to be able to recognize people's gender. However, privacy experts say that even though there are accuracy concerns, concerns about this technology misgendering people, that it could still have potential applications for things like bathroom bans and uh, potentially security cameras outside bathrooms that may flag anyone who doesn't conform to kind of... um, very uh, like heteronormative binary understandings of what gender performance is supposed to look like. Um, So anyone who doesn't fall into those very rigid gender categories. Um, Also concerns have been raised around drag bans and more particularized use of facial recognition. So say using uh, video surveillance footage to identify people who perhaps are performing under a pseudonym and don't want to be identified while participating in the art of drag. 
All right, you break the article down into segments, and that's how I want to walk through the rest of our time together. Um, You talk about the various places in society that this is and can play out. I want to start with policing gender and healthcare and get to some specifics, starting with when we're talking about laws that limit or deny gender-affirming care, what are we talking about in terms of application and impact? Um, So the vast majority of laws that have been passed uh, targeting gender-affirming care are specifically for folks under 18, and uh, typically they include bans on puberty blockers, which um, slow the, or halt the progression of puberty, um, and then also other forms of gender-affirming care. Now, it is important to clarify that although a lot of these laws are very centered on surgical interventions, there's kind of a false premise baked into that because it's extremely rare for minors to receive surgery for gender affirming care. And that's typically the result of a long process of of therapy and other um, interventions uh, before it comes to that. However, yeah, a lot of these laws are very, very focused on this idea of of, um, stopping surgeries for for minors who who are transitioning. now, every major medical organization in the U.S. is agreed that gender-affirming care is medically necessary and can be life-saving care, um, which is a huge part of why there's so much outcry to this, because there's also extensive research that shows that there's an increase in suicidality when people cannot access gender-affirming care, particularly minors who, you know, we, they're already um, there's lots of research documenting kind of heightened mental health challenges for uh, trans kids, particularly when they cannot access mental health resources, when they cannot access uh, gender affirming care. We tugged on this thread um, a little bit earlier, but can you say a bit more um, about the weaponization um, of private health care data? Yeah. Um, and and I want to mention that, be, I mean, we talked a bit about some of the concerns around medical data, which one of the concerns that was raised by a privacy expert I spoke with was this idea that uh, medical professionals may use patient data to out their colleagues, uh, because many of these laws that the people who would face potential penalties are, are medical providers. Um, And of course, since I started writing the article, that already came to pass in Texas. That example I was giving you of the the hospital employee who leaked medical data in in the aim that that employee was interviewed by the publication. They said their their aim was to stop the provision of gender-affirming care. Uh, But beyond medical data, there's also a number of concerns being raised about personal data and like other communications data, location data being obtained from cellular devices and used by law enforcement. And a lot of the alarms that are being raised by this are similar to concerns raised about abortion bans and the way that personal data could be used to kind of identify people who have obtained um, abortion care. Um, We know that the, the use by law enforcement of cellular data through things like geofence warrants or through data purchases when police aren't able to obtain a warrant, they can just buy the data. Um, We know that that practice has increased exponentially in recent years. So um, something that we did in this article is we kind of 
did a comparison of states that have new gender affirming care bans with looking at how frequently those states are obtaining geofence warrants or are um, you know, using people's cellular data as part of their investigations to enforce laws in their states. And what's very clear is that police in states with new gender affirming care bans are frequently using um, things like geofence warrants and data requests as part of their investigation. So there's every reason to believe that they would use them for these new laws that are now going into effect. I think another important parallel uh, between the enforcement of abortion bans and the enforcement of gender affirming care bans is the impact on the doctor-patient relationship, right? So that doctors are now not making decisions in terms of what's best for their patient. They're making decisions based on being afraid of going to jail for providing the type of care that may be best for the patient. Throwing uh, the medical industry in a bit of chaos and confusion, yeah? Absolutely. And, you know, part of what's uh, so concerning about these laws is the the chilling effect on behavior because a number of new anti-trans laws, the information that the law the laws themselves provide about how they will be enforced is quite vague. But uh, one one expert I spoke to, Evan Greer from Fight the Future, was arguing the chilling effect is really the point. the The vagueness of these laws is part of having a chilling effect on people's behavior, making people so afraid that they might face possible repercussions. That you know medical providers become too scared to have open and honest dialogues with patients about what their options are. And, you know, people who who may seek that care are also afraid and not sure of like what the best way to go about accessing reliable information is. So, I mean, beyond the, the deterioration of that specific relationship, I think that chilling effect has really wide ranging implications for constraining people's behavior and not only in states with new laws, but around the country, because you just create a climate of fear. Um, The other thing about this is that the pervasiveness of surveillance technology makes that chilling effect even more intense when we're aware that our, I mean, particularly in schools, there's a section of this article, and I'm sure we'll get to it, about surveillance in schools. But when you know that um, your online activities are constantly surveilled or your physical activities are constantly surveilled through video cameras, that affects your behavior. Um, And in the case of a, a place where there's maybe a bunch of new laws that have passed that are all targeting trans people, that's gonna affect your behavior when you're trying to live your life as a trans person. One more question before we get to policing gender in schools, because I think uh, it's a quite critical piece of this article. When we were talking uh, on the show last week about abortion bans, our expert talked about the fact that part of why these laws are so vague is because they're being written by right-wing think tank groups, not necessarily even legislators, and then just sort of passed out to right-wing legislators across the country. Is there a similar trend with these anti-trans laws? Yeah, absolutely, Kat. And actually, the the authors, the or uh, the organizations that are are writing the templates, the model legislation for both abortion bans and for gender affirming care bans, it's the same groups. Um, uh, so it's it's no coincidence that there's a lot of the same sort of strategies and approaches for how you. Uh, you write these laws, given that the same groups are behind them. There's a really excellent investigation that was published a couple months ago by Mother Jones that um, they were able to obtain a number of 
email conversations about these uh, from these groups as they were strategizing how to approach writing these laws in the way that would be most effective. Um, and the other thing that's important to know is that the reason why we're seeing this targeted attack across lots of states against trans people is because there was a lot of testing done by these national groups that showed that it pulled well, that it was a good issue for galvanizing voters. Um, so you mentioned some of my past work in Texas. You know, I, I reported in Texas for a long time, and we would see that you know there would be bad news about the Texas's energy grid, and then all of a sudden the governor would start talking about trans kids because it, it's an effective way to get people riled up, even though. I mean, trans kids in sports, we, you know, we've seen lots and lots of laws restricting this, but like, are, is this a real problem? I mean, that's, that's the, the response in, in so many states. It's like, has anyone even complained about this? How many people are we even talking about? I mean, uh, so I think that's a, that's a key a element point. of the story is kind of how it's really a, a scapegoat, um, because it, it has, you know, uh, research by right-wing think tanks have found that it uh it's good at um riling up voters policing gender in schools renee in addition to bathroom and locker bans and maybe break down how those play out for my listeners i don't want to assume um everyone is aware how else is gender policed within school settings with our children well So prior to working on this investigation, you know, I haven't been in in school for a minute. I did not realize how extensively students' online behavior is surveilled. Um, so student spyware online monitoring tools are widely used in schools around the country. And even in order for schools to access some federal funds, sometimes there's a requirement that they have to use online monitoring tools. The idea of these tools is... Um, to be a way, it's for student safety. That's the idea that um, you can flag certain terms um, and and use that as a way to identify when students are being cyber bullied or when they're having mental health concerns that, you know, school educators might want to intervene in. But in practice, um, research has shown that's not really how this this software is being used. Um, instead, there's there's quite a bit of evidence that um, student spyware is disproportionately targeting LGBTQ plus students, and also that it's largely being used to um, to punish students. Like that, it's that surveillance is not so much in practice being used for promoting student safety, but rather for finding infractions. Um, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I should mention that when we say online monitoring tools, um, it's exactly that. It's not just software on a student's school device that's tracking their, say, work on assignments, but it's it's also tracking all of their virtual communications, their, their browser searches, um, really all of their online activity. And particularly for students who, um, you know, maybe come from a low income family or marginalized community and perhaps are entirely reliant on school devices, this is their entire online existence is through school devices that are being surveilled with the software. So, you know, it's it's really quite omnipresent surveillance uh, for the virtual activities of students in many, many, many schools in this country. 
Yeah, Renee, I mean, you do a great job of this through the entire article in terms of intersectionality, but I'm wondering if you can just talk a bit, right, because we've been talking broadly about LGBTQ uh, plus communities, but when we talk about the intersection of race there, right, or race and class there, or communities that have historically already been surveilled and criminalized, it exacerbates the impact, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with these laws, it's like you know, so many other uh, spheres in our society that the people who are harmed the most, the people who are disproportionately targeted tend to be um, low-income people and people in communities of color. I mean, Black trans women, I think, are incarcerated at about 10 times the rate of the the general incarcerated population. Um, you know, it, in the school context, there are uh, Part of the concern that's being raised about student spyware is that uh, this spyware can be used to out students, which a lot of the new laws require educators to report changes in a student's gender identity or say if the student wants to use different pronouns or a different name. Now, there's a lot of research about what happens when students get outed um, in terms of the increased risk of homelessness, the increased risk of violence, and those risks are not born evenly among people from all sectors of society. No, like they're disproportionately impacting um, particularly Black folks. Um, and uh, so, yeah, when, when we talk about who's going to be harmed the most by surveillance technology as it's used to enforce anti-trans laws, um, all evidence would suggest that it's going to be communities of color, trans people of color. Renee, I've got to wrap this up shortly, but I, you know, I, I'm not one who looks to the federal government to protect me. However, it is worth noting, um, as you do in your article, that Part of what makes it so scary is there actually is no real federal regulation of these types of, of tactics. Um, there are no real protections for the people. What, what needs to happen? Like, what's the path forward? What What is the call to action or the demand? Um, <clears throat> well, you know, with anti-trans laws in general and, and with abortion laws as well, like you were talking about last week, um, you know, the, this is really a state-led effort. This is a battle going on in state legislatures. However, surveillance technology and data privacy protections is an area where the federal government could intervene and could take meaningful steps to mitigate some of the harms of these laws. I'm not saying that, um, you know, having greater data privacy protections would entirely mitigate the harms of these laws. Of course not. However, um, the the absence of federal regulation um, when it comes to surveillance technology creates opportunities for the abuse of these tools to be even greater with these laws and the potential for harms. Um, so more specifically, you know, uh, the, the U.S. doesn't have a basic data privacy law, say akin to the one in the, the European Union. We also have I think no federal pr uh, protections or regulations on facial recognition. Um, uh, privacy experts have also pointed to the lack of regulations or oversight of student spyware. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of room for improvement when it comes to federal oversight and regulations of surveillance technology. And this is an area where the ubiquity of these tools has grown so significantly in recent years that it's it's time for oversight to catch up. 
All right, Renee, I've got to leave it there. Thanks so much for the article, for your work, and for coming on the show this morning. Hope to have you back soon. We have been yeah, speaking thank you so to much Renee Klajic, an investigative reporter at POGO, the Project on Governmental Oversight, whose reporting has been published in Time Magazine, Teen Vogue, the Texas Texas Observer, and more. Her article for POGO is Policing Gender, How Surveillance Tech Aids Enforcement of Anti-Trans Laws. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.